So hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Tonight, I am welcoming on the show a man that I have wanted to interview for a long time. It's Frederick Leloux, who is the author of the best-selling book, Reinventing Organizations. And it's a book that has spurred, you know, a significant movement in the business world. And what I love about it especially is that it explicitly uses an integral developmental evolutionary model to, you know, make its points and makes the, uh, the thesis being that there's a next stage organization that is emerging. So uh, how'd I do, Fred? That was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a basic thing. So, 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 so you, let me, let me just give a little bit more about uh, who you are and where you're coming from here. Uh, you were a McKinsey consultant, and that's, of course, the high-level gold standard of consultant and you know, global management, and left to become a fancy-pants kind of consultant yourself, and then left that, and this was in Europe, mm-hmm. came to the States, and now uh, write, wrote the book, Reinventing Organizations, uh, and got it forward from Ken Wilbur, you know, and I think you're up to 400,000 copies now. Yeah. And that's astonishing. So hallelujah and thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm still pinching myself. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I self-published this book and I remember everybody telling me at the time that that was, you know, the stupidest idea ever because I'm not a marketer. I'm not a self-promoter. I, you know, wasn't on Twitter. I, you know, barely had a handful of, of Facebook friends, but I just sensed that, you know, I, I just needed to focus on the book and not on trying to get a publisher and thinking about, you know, that in some ways that would take care of itself. And I, I hear that in the world of publishing, this, you know, is, is a unicorn, like, you know, a self-publishing book that ends up selling 400,000 copies. And it's a pretty thick, dense 400 page book. I mean, I, I think yeah, it's quite, is. I think it's quite readable, but it's still, you know, pretty dense yeah. management. Uh, there it is. And it has, you know, all these words and sentences and paragraphs and pages. And, but, you know, if that seems a little daunting, there's also this version, which is Reinventing Organizations Light. And it's got pictures. Yeah. So that, and this is I wrote the, that. Yeah, this is my version right here. Yeah, I wrote that two years later because yeah. I, I, I heard from so many people who said like, you know, I read your book. I, I loved it. It touched me deeply. And I want to talk with everyone around me, you know, about this book, but so many people, you know, are just not the type that take in information, um, you know, through a thick 400 page book. Yeah. Yeah. So then I, 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 I'm not anymore. I feel like (laughs) I used to be, but I'm not sure I am anymore. Anyway, I I like the light version and, you know, again, so what I wanted to really look at with you is, you know, the thing that's most interesting to me and I think to our listeners is, um, you know, you're, you're, you're mapping out this next stage organization. And, um, and it's not just theoretical. You're finding organizations that are actually living up to the principles that you're talking about. And to an evolutionary, that's just like, you got me at, you know, the next stage kind of thing. Uh, because we, we know uh, that throughout history, the history of humanity, humans have organized themselves in a series of 
organizational structures that were unimaginable from the previous one. You know, if you think from going from an indigenous bands to tribes to then, you know, empires and, uh, and then modernity and then post-modernity, we all get really nice and sensitive. You know, it's really amazing, an amazing thing. And each of those stages has its own um, structures. And I think the best way to sort of download what you have to the listeners is, is to just, why don't we walk up through those first four or five? Uh, and then we'll move into the next stage, which is the emergent, and I love that you call it Teal organization, which is using Ken Wilber's Aqua Maps. Yep. So um, you want to start there? Yeah, we can do sort of a very quick tour of yeah. 10,000 years of you know, human history when it comes to organizations. Um, from what we seem to know, from what you know, historians and anthropologists tell us, um, we used to live for the longest time of humanity in pretty egalitarian bands. And at some point we switched to an age of, of larger tribes um, where we had suddenly hierarchy emerging in the form of a big man, you know, a chief, um, you know, in integral language, we would call that the red stage, um, the warrior stage. Um, and we needed a chief to keep everyone else safe. Um, and that, it seems to be the first moment where we had organizations, um, some sort of division of labor. Um, and at the time it was one tribe invading the next tribe and, you know, and, and making slaves. Um, but that, that sort of um, perspective on how we should organize ourselves is still around today when you look at mafias and street gangs, right? It's very loosely organized. Um, it's, generally a man um, who is at the very top and you know he has to um, show no sign of weakness and has every once in a while to show real signs of violence to keep everyone in control because if he shows a sign of weakness you know a younger fellow will come up and put a knife in his back and you know claim his spot sometimes right? it does yeah yeah so that's that's how street gangs and mafias are are organized um, mm -hmm. and it you know sends us back all the way to sort of the, the tribal age um, and then from what we know, humanity made this huge leap um, with the agrarian revolution to the age of empires and institutions and organized religions. Um, and when we look back, that's also when we made a real leap in terms of how people got organized. Um, and so rather than being these sort of wolf packs with an alpha wolf, as we had in the previous, in the red stage, you know, in this amber stage, if we use Ken Wilber's colors, um, in the agrarian stage, um, the metaphor of good organizations is that a good organization is like a good army, right? And that's when we invent strict hierarchies, you know, the pyramid and fixed reporting lines. And, you know, I'm your boss, you're my subordinate, right? And the uh, most emblematic of these organizations might be the Catholic Church, right? Because we all know it, it was started then, you know, it's been around for 2000 years, extraordinarily stable, um, and where people start to identify with their box in the org chart, right? And the levels of violence go down quite dramatically. You know, the- and Complexity just you know, explodes. Explodes, right? You can suddenly send in, you know, missionaries to the other part of the world as part of your of your organization and it's incredibly stable and it lasts for 2000 years. And, 
and it invents replicable processes, right? You don't reinvent the wheel every time like, you know, mafias and street gangs do. You actually have very replicable processes. Um, and, you know, the, the, the priests no longer all scheme to backstab the bishop. There is something where we are now bound by rules and by processes and we accept our place in the, in the hierarchy. Um, it's a whole different type of organization. Yeah. Uh, that is able to do things that previous organizations weren't able to do. Um, and then we have to wait, you know, another number of centuries for another big leap, which we know was the scientific industrial revolution, right? The leap to modernity. Um, and again, we pretty much reinvent organizations from the ground up, right? Um, and the metaphor changes again. So a good organization is no longer a good army because that's way too slow. That's way too static. A good organization is a well-oiled machine, right? Because the worldview changes. You know, the worldview is no longer static like in agrarian societies with absolute laws passed down from the gods, absolute right and wrongs. Um, suddenly the worldview is that the world is this intricate mechanic, right? And the better yeah. I understand the mechanic, the more I investigate it with scientific methods. You know, the faster I am, the more I can outcompete other people. You know, the more glory and riches come to me. Um, and so that's when organization um, make a number of amazing breakthroughs where they invent stuff like innovation. You know, we don't need to do the same thing next year as we did this year. Actually, we want to do something different because we want to outcompete everybody else. And so we invent R&D and, and, and marketing and, um, and product well, development. The sense of progress. And, real sense of you progress. You know, the movement of history in a way starts to set in because we can actually see history, exactly. you know. And so, yeah, creating some, being creative, creating something new becomes the sort of yeah. watchword, what you're looking for. Yeah. And then there's other amazing um, breakthroughs that come with that, like the notion of meritocracy, right? If you look at the previous stage, you had caste systems and, you know, Pope would always come from a noble family. It would never be a peasant that rises through the ranks, right? That was just unthinkable. Um, you know, simple priests were peasants, but, but not popes. But suddenly this new worldview, you know, the, the smartest person should go to the top. And, you know, just this immense liberation that comes with this notion of meritocracy. And um, that brings this whole arsenal of HR practices because we suddenly invent, you know, something that in management terms is sometimes called management by objectives. So it's no longer command and control. I no longer tell you exactly what to do and how to do it. I just give you targets you know, and then you can run. And as long as you more or less make your numbers, I don't want to know how you do it. And so there's a degree of freedom that comes with that that didn't exist in previous stages. And with that, we invent this whole HR arsenal of budgets and objectives and targets and KPIs and stock options and, you know, bonus schemes and, you know, yearly performance evaluation. I mean, all of that is the invention of modernity. Yeah, the modern world. And so let's pause for a minute. That's, yeah. you know, the skyscrapers, the cars, the endless supply of safe food, yeah. uh, you know, all of the stuff that Hospitals, we have. Hospitals, healthcare, life. and public uh, education. Doubled lifespans, education. I mean, uh, this, what did Daniel Dennett said, a spectacularly tangible result uh, yeah. of modernity. Yeah. Exactly. And yet, you know, and this hard seems to have <laughs> run its course. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, the beat goes on. You the know? beat goes on. And it seems like that whole management edifice of modernity that I just 
evoked, you know, that we teach in business schools, you know, that all our expensive MBAs teach to millions of people around the world, um, seems to be at, at wit's end, seems no longer quite to know what to do because the world is moving on, is becoming ever more complex, ever more uncertain, volatile, um, mm-hmm. and because our longings and our hopes and our expectations are moving on. Mm-hmm. Right? There's all of these surveys that show that um, people are by and large disengaged from their work, right? And especially these larger organizations with their multiple levels of hierarchies and, and all of these processes that sound good on paper, uh, but no longer work in, in practice um, and disempower everyone in, in just mm-hmm. this blob of bureaucracy um, mm-hmm. and of meaninglessness, of trying to reach targets that no longer mean anything. Um, and, and so there's a real disillusionment um, with something that used to be enormously liberating at some point. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, we, that, that's part of how we and why we move forward is it start, the status quo starts feeling suffocating. Exactly. You know, and we've, we realize that we're a, sort of a cog in a machine and nobody wants that, you yeah. know. So onward. Yeah, but maybe this that I want to add is because this is so much the background to the, at least the corporate world that it is almost invisible, right? It's just mm-hmm. the water that we swim in. And so, so many people are unhappy, um, either are burning out or feel underused, um, feel that their work is meaningless, that they have bullshit jobs. Um, but they don't know often how to frame it. And that's why it was so important to me in the first part of the book to take this sort of this grand historic narrative um, because so many people blame themselves and say, what's wrong with me? Why can't I find meaning in my work? Why can't I find work that I'm happy with? Yeah, we're all um, told to pursue your passion. You know? Exactly, right? And, um, like, and find your purpose wow. in life. And, and, yeah. um, and I think there is something very liberating when we realize you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with me. You know, maybe the system itself is no longer, is failing us, is no longer working for us. And and I'm just sort of a collateral damage to this stage in evolution. Um, Yeah, yeah. So a new hunger, a new realization comes online. And how would you describe that? um, So so some people call it the the postmodern stage right or the green stage and um and that stage um really starts to question uh the premise of modernity and saying hey this single-minded pursuit of faster cheaper better of more uh, more you know constant optimization and innovation simply to gain market share and more profit um, you know there's other important things in life um you know there is there's respect and there's tolerance and there is one another and there is, um, you know, and, and it, 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 it becomes a dissolution with hierarchy. Yeah. And, people, well, and also you know, the, the, it, we realize the limits of growth in terms yeah. of the globe. Exactly. And, and the planet and, and resources we, and, and yeah. climate and yeah. And, um, but often, as often the stage doesn't, you know, knows what it doesn't like, you know, find it very hard to formulate something else. And so sort of the radical proposal that came 
already sort of at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century was sort of a rag, you know, radical egalitarianism, you know, or the idea of cooperatives where we would all be equal. Um, but then we, we noticed that that doesn't work. You know, you, running a large organization of 1,000 people by consensus or 10,000 people with everybody being absolutely equal, that, you know, just, just doesn't work. Right. Um, but still, it's, the it's stage... hard to run a group of six or eight with that kind of an attitude, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, so it took a while for some new breakthroughs to materialize, but they came. And that sort of the big contribution that that next stage made, um, and you could call it the information age, you know, if you don't like postmodernity, was the notion that um, next to all the hard side of business, that, you know, all of the budgets and strategies and targets and, and all of that, there's this whole other side, the soft side of business, right? And that's when suddenly there was this explosion of all of these notions of servant leadership and, you know, managers shouldn't be autocrats, you know, they should really be coaches. And um, a famous uh, sentence from Peter Drucker that strategy, uh, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Which we would basically say green eats orange for breakfast, right? Yeah. And but basically what they mean is, if you have a wonderful culture, a culture where people listen to one another, are caring with one another, um, where you know, everybody's voice and intelligence counts and comes to the table, you know, that beats you know, the best strategy that you can, that you can imagine. Um, yeah. And so that's when we started having all of these leadership development programs, right? And all of these culture transformation programs that we see in, um, in large organizations. We also, this was also concurrent with the influx of women into the workplace. Yep. If you think of this, particularly getting in, in the 70s and 80s, yep. um, that was enormous. Yeah. And then the explosion of nonprofits. Yeah. Right. The whole world of nonprofits and social entrepreneurs. And right. Right. Um, and yet, you know, that's, that's still not where the story ends, right? Um, right. Yeah. Well, and the downsides of that are what? I mean, so we have a gig economy. We have a sense of insecurity. Uh, I mean, what, what would you say about there's a hollowed out middle? Absolutely. Um, and a lot of that is still sort of the aftermath of, of modernity. Right. Um, but in these very culture-driven organizations, um, you start to face a, a dilemma. Um, and that is that, you know, you keep the fundamental architecture of the organization, you keep the pyramid intact. And you're trying to change it with a benign culture. Mm -hmm. So you keep having a hierarchy, you keep having somebody else having power over other people. Yeah. Right? Say, Jeff, you're a boss to a 1000 people, you have power over these people, it's undeniable. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you're being sent to all of these leadership development programs, all these culture programs that tell you, but please, Jeff, be a benign leader, be a servant leader. You know, actually, we gave you that power. Please don't use it. Right. Um, I, I remember. Well, it you know, I mean, actually, it's a legitimate it kind of makes sense as the next stage. I mean, we still have to work with this amazing machine of modernity because exactly. it's given us the goodies. Exactly. Uh, you know, but we, we, we want to bring in a, a more evolved interior, you might say. 
exactly where we use the tools of it with you know more humanity and more benignly exactly yeah i i remember i i had this image um that i put in the book and it was the only sentence that my um you know my editor was reading you know for um just proofreading from mistakes said, you know, you, you, you can't use this sentence in the United States. You have to change this. You know, and oh, I'm good. coming from a European Belgian sensitivity. And I was just using this image. It's like, you know, keeping the power structure intact, but then trying to have everybody be, you know, a benign dictator um, is kind of like giving all the children in kindergarten a gun and then teach them all the time not to use it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, just replace that with a stick. But, but, but that's basically what it is. You know, you give people real power over other people. Um, and then you have to constantly invest mm-hmm. um, in training and culture programs to make mm-hmm. sure that all that power is used benignly. And there are some wonderful examples. I mean, you know, Southwest Airlines and, and Ben and & Jerry's and Starbucks. And, you know, there's organizations with just really amazing cultures. Um, out there that work on that model. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a model that, that can work, but is, um, just requires this immense and constant investment. Um, Where would you put like a Google or even an Apple? Well, really are, they, mostly, are they getting some new territory? Uh, um, it's hard for me to judge because I haven't researched them, but just from an outside perspective, um, you know, they still feel very, very modern in, in their outlook. I mean, they have... Yeah ping pong tables and sushi bars. Well, they um, may be what you're talking about with the, the, the green in, in a sense, because they do have modern structures, but they have uh, really uh, pretty intense cultures, right? Yeah, um, but it's interesting. I, I think they still come from this extremely, especially Google from this extremely engineering data-driven mm-hmm. mindset. There's this fascinating study that they did that cost them a huge amount of money where they did extraordinarily large data-driven exercise to understand which teams are performing well and why. You know, so looking at the best performing teams and looking, crunching all the possible data on all possible criteria. Um, so coming at it you know, from this very you know, scientific industrial perspective and then finding a result that of course won't surprise you or me, but from a lot of people is this big aha, which is it's basically the psychological safety within the team that matters, mm-hmm. you know, can people, you know, speak up, can people make their voice heard, you know, mm-hmm. does it feel like a safe place where we can, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that was it, but it was interesting how they got to something, which probably to you and me makes obvious sense, but they got to it through, you know, just crunching tons of data because that's just how they tend yeah. to approach things. Um, well, it makes sense now that you mention it <laughs> in a way, I'm not sure I would have thought of it on my own, but yeah. I mean, who isn't going to be accessing their highest and best when they feel like people care, they see me, I'm safe to be me. I could be Jeff. Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 and I could actually express Jeff and I can uh, have my life's purpose be enmeshed somehow in the purpose of this organization so that I could go home at night and feel good about my day. Exactly. You know, who doesn't want that? And working with people who I see in the same way, I see them as clearly and, you know, receive them as fully as they receive me. And yet it's a professional setting. And 
you know, so I, I get a little lost here, so Fred. So here we're moving now into the new world, right? This is yeah. the new integral teal uh, organization. Yeah. And how would you lay it out? Well, let me first say this is, um, so I, I knew of this sort of arc of history and, you know, this integral perspective. And, and so I was really curious and I went out there researching, are there already organizations, you know, that, that operate in part or maybe wholly on, you know, you know, from the next, from the next stage, because I, I just knew that, you know, the, the dissatisfaction with the current models is, is pretty widespread, right? The number of executives that leave their job because at some point they say, you know what, I, I don't no longer want to do this. I no longer want to participate. The number of nurses and, and doctors who leave hospitals because they say, you know, hospitals have just become these really inhospitable places and the number of mm -hmm. teachers who leave schools. I mean, um, and I, I just had this hunch that, you know, at least some of them, must have recreated an organization based on their perspective on the way they see the world. You know, there must be, you know, at least, you know, one school out there and, you know, some companies and for profits. And so I started actively researching um, organizations uh, that, that might operate differently. And what was striking in the research is that I started seeing a number of places. And in the end, I, I researched 12 organizations in, in, in pretty great depth who didn't know of one another. Um, and yet often operated on pretty remarkably similar, not only principles, but sometimes even practices. Hmm. Um, you know, as if they were downloading sort of the same code at the same time, as if there was something that was ready, um, something in the air, you know, just like several people, you know, have, have discovered, you know, differential calculus or something at the same time. You know, yeah. it, it just seems... You know, it just the times just seem ready yeah. for a number of people to discover this code, and and it's been quite fascinating that how happy they were to discover that they weren't the only ones, because they often thought they were the only fools who really dared to question the sort of the whole edifice of management that business schools tell us. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody was telling them they were crazy, but they just you know were, were adamant that they just needed to do something different. Um, and it was interesting to me that the the reason they wanted to do something different is not because they wanted to do, to get more profit or be more effective or more agile or more. Um, there was something from within. There was just something that in them that said, you know what, the old way, I simply cannot do this. Like I, I simply cannot get myself to do it. Um, I just need to do something else that, you know, that is in, in line with how I see the world with my integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and these are pretty remarkable organizations. Um, yeah. And well, is it? I mean, it seems again so obvious, but it's really it it really is radical to to assume that I actually can make my life count, and I, and I'm actually not willing to not make it count. I'm not willing to do this. And of all the nerve, you know, human beings after all of our history, get the nerve to just say no, I can't do it this way anymore. And that's, of course, the, you know, the, evolu the evolutionary urge that moves us forward. And this is just the, the latest incarnation of that. But I always think that the, you know, some of the markers of the evolutionary urge is that you're just bored to tears with what's going on. 
you. you know, you just feel suffocated by it. I can't take out another minute. <laughs> and, and then on with the show. Yeah. So then uh, how would you describe these organizations? I know you've done real research into them and have identified quite a number of them. Uh, what would you say is the common or some of the common themes? Yeah, so they, uh, there are, I believe, three breakthroughs that, that come with that, that leap. Um, one of them is this notion of, of self-management. Um, so you start to see more and more organizations, and now they're popping up all over the world, like the, the movement is really accelerating, um, of organizations that no longer function with a pyramid that really function with distributed authority. They don't function with a what? With a pyramid. Oh, you know, pyramid, really, yes. The pyramid, um, you know, with one person at the top and then yep. a number of direct reports and then more direct reports. And um, so you have a number of really extraordinary organizations um, uh, that have, you know, thousands of people where you don't have a single boss subordinate relationship. You know, you no longer have anybody holding power over anyone else. And that sounds absolutely crazy um, because we've just been so conditioned to think that, hey, the only way we can get things done, I mean, come on, let's be serious, is, you know, somebody needs to call the shots. Right? Yeah. You were just saying it like, you know, we can't make consensus work with a group of more than six to eight people. I mean, how could it ever work with a thousand people? <laughs> right. And, and the, the problem with self-management is that as soon as you say that word, almost everyone gets a wrong impression. Almost everyone, for some reason, things, you know, 1960s, 70s, um, hippy dippy, you know, um, consensus, let's all sit in a big room and talk as long as it takes. And, you know, maybe in two weeks we'll make a decision and, um, yep. and no structure and, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and that's not the case at all. Um, so, you know, you have manufacturing organizations that, you know, compete, you know, against cheap Chinese imports. Um, and, you know, they work with extraordinarily thin margins and they work with self-management. And, you know, all of the examples of self-managing organizations I've seen um, seem to outperform traditional organizations by leaps and bounds. Um, again, the interesting thing is that's not why people do it. Um, but it's just a result. There's, um, there's just something that is, you know, extraordinarily more productive um, when you distribute authority um, than when you centralize it. Um, so, yeah. the, um, so it's not like there's no rules, right? Absolutely. I mean, Thank you yeah. for bringing it up. Um, yeah. So there's just as much structure. There's just as, there are just as many rules of the games. It's just a different rule of the game. So, What's interesting is so that we're not, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting, if, even if we think about evolution, when people talk about the next stage, unless you're really ready for it, it sounds like a reversion to an earlier stage. Exactly. So what this sounds like to the, you know, common, common ear uh, is a reversion to chaos. Exactly. You know, and, and it's, it's the exact opposite. So what these organizations had to do, and, and, and I found it so fascinating to research is, they had to solve just a number of very practical questions. Okay, so we no longer want somebody having power over somebody else, but then who can make what decision? You know, and if people disagree and there's conflict, who resolves that? It's, if there's no longer a boss, 
you know, to cut the knot. And, you know, who gets a pay raise at the end of the year? Right. Right. And do we still have targets? And so, yeah. you know, they had to. And these and, are highly charged issues in first tier organizations. Exactly. And what happens if somebody slacks off? And, you know, what, you know, how do we do performance evaluation if there's no boss around? So, um, and so the, the really exciting thing is that there's enough of these organizations out there for us to have the answers to these questions. We, we now know how to do this. Like, this is no longer a mystery. Like, there have been organizations like this that have been operating sort of in the shadows for 30, 40, 50 years, and we just know how to do this. Okay, so who can make what decision? Well, there's something called the advice process. There's something called, you know, consent-based decision-making. We just, you know, we know how this operates, and we know that this operates extraordinarily well, even at, at large scales. You know, we, we know how to set salaries. We, we just know all these things. Um, all right, so let me stop you there. You mentioned two processes, uh, one being the advice process, the other being the cons consent process. Yeah. Just give us the outlines. Okay. So the advice process, you know, it's not my, um, my name or concept. It's um, a person called Dennis Backey who created a 40,000 people firm that operated with the advice process. Do we um, know the name of the firm? Would yeah, it's called AES. Um, and so they were founded from the beginning with these kind of concepts. Unfortunately, um, you know, 20 years in, um, you know, a new CEO was appointed and it's a more traditional CEO and now it's returned to become a more traditional organizations, but they, they've run for a long time with extraordinary success with, um, with the advice process. And the advice process in essence is very simple. Um, it says that anybody in the organization can make any decision provided that they seek advice from a people with expertise, right? It would be stupid to make a decision, not ask people who know something about the question and B, seek advice from people who will have to live with the consequences of that decision, you know, who will be meaningfully impacted. And then that person seeks that advice, um, you know, and enriched by that advice, you know, um, at some point goes like, hmm, this is the best decision I can think of and makes that decision. So there's sort of a mini process of collective intelligence that happens um, in the brains of that one person. Um, mm -hmm. Now notice it's not consensus. Right? Often it's impossible to reconcile all of the sometimes conflicting advice that people, mm -hmm. that people might give. But to the best of their knowledge, you know, that person decides, you know, this is the decision. Right. And the bigger the decision, the more people they Obviously have to get have input to. from. Right. Exactly. And these rules are laid out. These rules are laid out. Um, sometimes it's as simple as that. Others, you know, have, have you know, more details to, to it of, you know, who do you need to ask for advice and how do you do it? And, okay, so um, that's the advice process. You get the advice, you make the decision. But, but think about this, how radical this is, right? So if you have an organization of 10,000 people, it means that there's now 10,000 people who no longer need the approval of anybody. They no longer need to make a word memo or PowerPoint deck to bring to the next level of management that brings it one more level up then brings it one more level up to the executive committee, you know, who has 10 minutes to look at it and then makes a decision without fully understanding all of the implications, right? It means 10,000 people are fully empowered. You notice something that could be better. You just go out there, get advice and make it happen. So the, the number of decisions that get made, you know, are suddenly multiplied by a hundred or by a thousand, you know, the organization is just, you know, suddenly firing on 10,000 cylinders instead of firing on, you know, the 10 cylinders of the executive committee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, there's a, 
I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it. I've, you know, maybe steeped in this, these earlier models. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that brings up, I imagine with you and maybe people listening, all sorts of questions because it just sounds almost too good to be true, right? There's this sort of, yes, but yes, you know, come on, like you can't be serious, right? People can't just decide to spend money and, and all of these things. And, and what happens if people shoot from the hip and, you know, just, you know, they pretend to listen to advice, but, you know, they already made up their minds. And, um, and what's extraordinary about the advice process is how robust it is because we're constantly enmeshed in a network of advice processes, right? Um, you know, I come to ask you um, for advice um, and you will give me that advice, right? And you expect me to really think it through and really take it into account. And yep. maybe I will make a decision in a different direction, but only after I've really thought it through, right? You expect yep. it from me. Yes. So when this afternoon I come to you you know, because you've asked me for advice, it's very difficult for you to simply discard my advice because we're constantly on both sides of that thing. And, you know, if in the end I make a decision and I come back to you and say, Jeff, you know, I've listened to everybody and I've really thought this true. And this is a decision. I know you might not like it because, you know, you had a different preference. Um, you tend to have a huge amount of respect for me because you know how hard it is because you've been in the same situation. Mm-hmm of having to have to make a call where you know that some people might not be happy with it, mm -hmm. but you just, you know, took your chances and took your responsibilities. So you know how hard that is. And so you respect the fact that I do the same thing. Um, no, I, I, I get that. And I get that, you know, there is a bigger self that we can all inhabit where we could trust each other to be, bring a wisdom to the situation. And it's amazing how much wisdom we have when there's room for it. Uh, I just I, I hung up maybe just a little bit on the technicalities, but could somebody in HR, for instance, go buy a new, you know, Chevy uh, for the, you know, I mean, what, what, what parameters of decisions you can make are there or are there any? Do we just uh, trust this wisdom that miraculously comes online when we operate this way? And I think there is such a thing, but what yeah. do you well, the one part that we need to understand about these um, self-managing systems is that they're self-correcting. You know, just like systems in nature are constantly self-correcting. Um, so an interesting uh, feature of all of the self-managing organizations is next to having a different decision-making process, they also all have a clear conflict resolution process. Because if you, Jeff, suddenly go out there and buy a Chevy, and that's just outrageous, there has to be a very clear mechanism for me to hold you to account, right? Okay. And, and, and so you won't do this a second time. And right. you know, we'll learn from it. And then common sense kicks in, right? right. Um, you, know, you know, if I'm in, in HR, you know, I'm not going to buy a new production machine. Like, even if I have an idea, because... You know, I'm going to talk to the production guy, obviously, you know, right. the production girl, right? I mean, you know, we wouldn't make any sense to, to overstep that boundary. Um, and, you know, and then we have some, some rules of engagement. So we might no longer have a travel policy. Um, you might be able to buy your own flight tickets, but then we might have just some, some guidelines. Hey, you know, if we fly within the United States or within Europe, we fly economy. And if we fly transatlantic, right. we fly business. And, or I'm just making this up. And so we have, right. you know, we okay. just develop 
All right. So these rules are, again, this, it, the, there's just kind of a new set of rules or a new way of relating to rules, but they're still rules. And if you want to change your rules, anybody can, you know, open up the rules and saying, hey, we just realized these rules no longer make sense. I want to amend them. I want to change them mm -hmm. right? because you feel attention. Well, this, this gets me maybe to the, this next piece, the consent piece. Yeah. Uh, and let's put that on the table because I think it really, in a way, they work together. Yeah, so this is, now you're really getting technical and, and, and nerdy, and I love this about, you know, like, <laughs> uh, geeky around decision-making processes. But, um, um, so the consent-based decision-making is what some organizations um, decide for really, really touchy, important subjects, where they say, hey, um, rather than just the advice process, we want some people to be able to make principled objections um, that pause the process um, and force us to integrate different perspectives. So it's not consensus. We don't want everybody to right. agree with it. Just if somebody has a principled objection, um, we can voice that and we can integrate it. So you come asking for advice. Um, I give you advice, but say, hey, you know, here, you know, in your proposal, I have a principled objection. Um, and you, at that moment, you can't move forward until you and I have really sat together and figured it out. Um, yeah. And so this is much more time intensive. And so is generally reserved for just, you know, a handful of important or, you know, decisions um, where we say, hey, you know, here, we don't want to take the risk of getting it wrong. We don't want, you know, of just you, Jeff, integrating all of the advice um, and still possibly just, you know, seeing, having a partial perspective. We really want to make sure that we integrate all of the perspectives. So it's a very integral sort of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the, um, I, I know that you are uh, aware of and have respect for the uh, management uh, approach of holacracy. Mm -hmm. And um, I worked with Brian Robertson, who's sort of the evangel evangel evangelist for holacracy, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, back in the Integral Institute days when we were first starting out. Yeah. And, um, and there are about 40 people, and we did his interlocking system of circles. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't remember how that worked necessarily, but um, here's what was magical and miraculous about it. We would have these consent meetings. We were going for consent instead of consensus. Yeah. And it would be like, like for instance, what, one thing we might be doing is creating a seminar. So we have all of the man, people from uh, the, the people who are managing the trainers, the people who are in the uh, uh, finance and, you know, the different characters in a room. And um, I'm forgetting the details, but what was essential about it is that somebody would make a proposal. The rest of the people, in a very organized way, again, very highly rule-based, it was fun in a way, yeah. would go around, and all they were allowed to do would be ask clarifying questions so that we made sure that we understood what this person's problem was and what they were going to do to solve it. So they were basically identifying a stressor in their job, in their system. And we, have, we would have a lot of these meetings, so they wouldn't have to fester, and, you know, so, but these meetings would be short and powerful. So, so then we'd ask the questions. And then unless there was an objection from somebody, that 
their decision would be implemented, knowing that three days later we can adjust it, whatever, if there's a new tension that arises, a new stress that arises. So what was really, uh, and I may have uh, mangled it a little bit, but the key was, is that we were looking for stressors. Um, We were uh, uh, alleviating these stressors and we were, um, uh, the person who was involved with it would make the decision unless there was an objection. And we weren't, uh, we weren't asked to offer opinions or tell stories or think about what ifs or a brainstorm or any of that kind of stuff. So these meetings became very focused and the ball would move so fast and efficiently that honest to God, Fred, there were a couple meetings where I felt like there was a liftoff of the we space. That we were all operating from a higher space together. And, you know, it, you know, evolution's funny. It, it, was, it was fragile. It, it ultimately didn't last. You know, I don't know if we were, you know, committed to it as we should be. But I do know that, that there was a liftoff of the we space that lets me see into what's next. And not just what's next in terms of how we uh, organize, organize ourselves in terms of, you know, the productions of goods and services, but just the way we organize ourselves and the way we relate to each other um, in all kinds of ways. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty exciting, you know, because we really are imagining a new way of relating and in the second person, also in the third person in terms of creation, but also just. Yes. It is something remarkable. I, I don't know if, if you would put it in those terms, but that that happens with some of these mechanisms that are just pretty ruthlessly efficient. Yes. Um, is that the, um, a lot of the ego stuff, you know, gets drained out of the room. Yes, that's, that's exactly what happens. Um, and, you know, we, we know that we can, we will be heard. We know that we can contribute. There's no fear you know, all of the fear when people hold power over you or when you hold power over other people, um, you know, is, is, is poison because it, it brings so much of, of, you know, of our egos and our shadows um, out into those meetings and all of the politics and all of the games we play and all yes. the fears of what if that person says this and I have to prepare this and before the meeting, let me talk to this person and then that person just in case that happens and let me warn them about all of that, you know, all of that's off the table. All of that's off the table because yeah. we trust that the mechanism is robust and yeah. I can just show up, you know, not be particularly prepared. And in the meeting, I, you know, yes. And in real time, we're looking at a real stress that's happening in the system and we're alleviating it. And then we're moving on baby because tomorrow's a new day. And, and there's something about that. And, and in dropping and I love what you said about dropping the ego. There's, it's not about looking good. And that's not to say that, of course, outside of these consent meetings, you yeah. could do all the stuff that human beings do. And, and how great is that? Uh, yeah. but in these consent meetings, there's a, a new thing that emerges. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me, um, and, and Brian Robertson often says that, is you get to this state where um, we have much less of the ego and the politics and all of that that show up actually through better structures. Yes. Not through people 
doing leadership development and working hard on, right? Um, but then the systems actually invite us to do all of that inner work. Yeah. Yeah, and I love how Ken wrote about it in your, in your foreword to your book about it's not like the pyramid goes away in a way. There's still power that's organized, but people can move through the pyramid and be where they, uh, where they're, they could be 100% powerful exactly. uh, and be wherever they need to be in that pyramid. So that's, that's really, that's exactly it. So what is striking about these self-managing system where um, authority is distributed is that everybody is fully powerful by design. And what happens then is you no longer have these power hierarchies, these dominator hierarchies, those, they disappear. But a frequent misunderstanding is that then people believe that everybody's the same. You know, people talk about flat organizations and I don't like that term at all. Um, what happens then is that you have natural hierarchies that emerge, right? On any one question, some people will be more knowledgeable you know, we'll know more, we'll have more interest, we'll have more excitement, we'll have more background and skills. So on that question, they're taller than everyone else. And hooray, that's great. You know, let them take the lead, let them run with it. Right. And another question, somebody else is taller, right? And so, um, and so these organizations aren't flat or equal. What you want is everybody to be at the top of their game. You want everybody to be as powerful as they can be. Yeah. to bring everything that they've got to the table. And so what you see over and over again in these organizations is stuff that nobody would have expected, you know, is, you know, the guy in manufacturing, you know, who used to be just a machine operator who suddenly shows all these other talents that nobody had ever seen mm -hmm. and just completely blossoms, you know, and, you know, the woman in accounting who suddenly writes marketing copies because, you know, she's actually an amazing writer, but there was never any place for that piece or, um, and so, and so you absolutely have, um, natural hierarchies, totally fluid, ever-changing hierarchies of experience, of interest. Uh, and you trust that people are going to recognize these natural yeah. hierarchies and, yeah. and they're going to have help because they're going to have feedback from other people. Yeah. And so these natural hierarchies can be trusted. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, people are, you know, it's just common sense. I mean, let's say that you're, you know, really gifted marketing person. Everybody knows, you know, hey, if you have a marketing question, you need advice, well, let, you know, let's go ask Jeff. Um, yeah. And right. so there's actually an interesting um, space for competition with, with cooperation. You know, these two poles where people compete to be helpful. People yeah. compete to be, um, to be visible, to be contributing. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's how, you know, people look up to you. Um, it's because you do cool stuff because you've listened well to their advice and you've made yeah. you know, great decisions. And again, how f deeply fulfilling is that to be yeah. seen for what you actually have to offer and to be able to give it? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, one breakthrough self-management. Yeah. All right. So you use an example in your book that I think maybe you could do a quick, uh, 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 explain it quickly to us. And that's this Birdsorg nursing organization. Yes. And I think it's such a good example because, uh, you know, it, we're all being folded, spindled and mutilated by the healthcare system. Yeah. And this really just takes that on full frontal. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's maybe the, the most beautiful or easy story to tell because it offers such a, a vivid contrast between, you know, management as we know, it's sort of this, management that looks at organizations as machines, you know, 
management of modernity, the management of MBAs, and then what's happening now, right? So in the Netherlands, in the 1980s, um, the Dutch state who pays for healthcare, um, you know, because hooray, we have free healthcare in, in Europe, <laughs> they, um, you know, were just convinced that they had to um, use this modern management system and bring that to, um, you know, these nurses that were working in people's homes, right? So we're, we're talking about home care. Um, so nurses who, that don't work in hospitals, you know, who don't work in hospitals, but, but in people's homes. And, and so they had these, you know, ideas that all make sense from this modern perspective. They said, you know, these, these nurses that used to work on their own or in small teams, um, you know, that's not very efficient. We should have economies of scale. And we'll have economies of scale by forcing them to join larger organizations. Um, and then we, we can do a number of cool things. We can start uh, specializing nurses because we know that the older, more experienced nurses, we have to pay them more. So let's have these nurses do the complicated stuff and all the rest we can give to cheap nurses that just come out of school. And then um, they realized, hey, but nurses have their own clients, their dedicated clients, and that's not very efficient. Because sometimes, you know, a nurse, you know, doesn't have anything to do for two hours between two clients. We pay them, you know, um, and they don't do anything. So let's break that link. And every nurse can just be dispatched to any clients. And so let's take away their phones and let's create a call center. And clients can no longer call a nurse directly. They call the call center. And every day we dispatch a different nurse. That makes the system just so much more flexible. Yeah, nobody's so, sitting around. And nobody's sitting around. Like, that's, that's efficient, right? That's great. And then they realized, hey, some nurses are more efficient than other nurses. You know, they're just much faster. So let's define time norms for what they started calling products, right? It's no longer care, it's products, right? So, you know, um, giving a shot is a product and, you know, helping an older lady take a shower is a product. And, and so a shot is 10 minutes and a shower is 15 minutes and changing compression stocking is two and a half minutes. And, you know, all of these things were time. Um, and then once they had that, then they said, oh, but that's wonderful. Now we can do planning, right? Which makes a lot of sense. So you, they started hiring this bunch of young kids from business school that they put next to the call center in the headquarters who would use clever programs to um, decide, Jeff, you know, your next day you start at eight o'clock as a nurse um, with this old lady. It's a compression stocking. So at eight or two and a half, you know, you're out of the door. And then Google Maps calculates that you need six minutes to be at the next client. So you expect it there at eight or eight and a half. And then you give a shot and then you're out there at eight or 18 and a half. And then, you know, Google Maps calculates three minutes to the next client. And that's how your day looks like. Kill me now, man. Oh, but you know, it's not wonderfully efficient, right? I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm joking, but I, you know, I say that with some sadness because I haven't done something quite like that, but in my past as a consultant, you know, that's sort of the, perspective we were operating from that's some of the stuff that we might have done yeah. because it just makes so much sense well no but, this is this is the knitted into the culture of a lot of organizations yeah. in fact uh, you know that's what organizations are striving for exactly and then you can do oh but let's do continuous improvement now that we do this because we can ask the nurses to um, scan a barcode every time they go into a client's house um, so we have a central data system that knows exactly where they are how much time they take. And so, you know, me as a manager, I can now look at all the nurses and I look, hey, Jeff, somehow, you know, for the showers, you always take 18 minutes rather than 15 on average. So we can train you, you know, to go down to 15. You know, wow, that's great, man. You know, and so we do continuous improvement. 
And of course, the result of that um, is a system that looks wonderfully efficient. You know, everything is accounted for and we have targets and objectives and, you know, we have these internal consultants who try to improve everything. Um, but there's this huge shadow side, which is that um, you hate your job and your clients hate the service, right? So you as a nurse, you know, you've chosen this because you want to give good care and the system makes that you're perpetually late and that very often you know that you're doing the wrong thing. You know, you see a client and you see that something isn't quite right, but you have absolutely no time to go into, you know, after asking questions. You're there to change your compression stockings. Exactly, right? Or you come in and then you say, okay, I'm here for the compression stockings. And, it, and the, the old woman says, yeah, that's what it says on paper. But yesterday I talked to the doctor and he actually said, and you said like, you know what? Sorry, I don't have time to listen. You put a compression stocking, you're out. Right. And, and you know, your soul bleeds because, because that's not what you wanted to do. But the system, you know, just pushes you. You're already six minutes behind schedule. And, and clients hate it because every day there's a new nurse coming in. And, and they have to re-explain everything in the privacy home. You know, often there's some more, you know, older, maybe confused people and they just no, hate it, it's right? terrible. They don't feel seen. No, no, there's right. no connection allowed to happen. So, you know, we're ready for the next thing already, Fred. Yeah, and then there's this, this amazing man um, that comes along. Uh, his name is Strustablock and he's been one of these nurses, you know, for, for 10 years, he's experienced all of these changes. Um, He's even gone into management and tried to change these systems from within and, and couldn't do it. And at some point he quit and he said, just, I, I can't do this anymore. And he had a sense, a vision of how to do this differently. And he created Birtor um, originally, you know, with just four people uh, 10 years ago. And it's now grown to 14,000 people. Um, it's just this extraordinary story. Um, and it's Burtzorg Nursing, B-U-U-R-T-Z-O-R-G Nursing. Exactly. So, which means in, in, in Dutch means simply neighborhood care. Ah. Um, and his vision was very simple is, you know, he says, um, my purpose is not to um, change compression stockings or give shots as efficiently as possible. Um, the purpose is somehow for people to be able to live the richest, most autonomous lives that they can with whatever conditions they have. And so um, they immediately went back to a model where every patient just sees one or two nurses, um, always the same, um, create very deep bonds. And the first thing a nurse does is sit down and drink coffee um, and take real time to say, hey, where are you at in your life? What can you still do? What can you no longer do? Um, what's your network of support? And they actively help those people rebuild a network of support or you have your children in town, but you don't really get along, you know, maybe I can be there and you have a meeting and I can tell them how they might help you. Um, they go, you know, ring at the door of neighbors and say, you know, um, do you know the old lady next door? Um, would it be okay for me to introduce you so that you could help her if she, if she needs help? They, they really do that kind of thing. Um, so they just create these, extraordinary relationships trying to help people regain autonomy next so to we, giving care. We have one or two nurses uh, that this patient can rely on. That's that, those are my people. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. for years, sometimes still terminal care. I mean, it's just amazing the depth of knowledge. I've, I've, I've sat in team meetings of some of these nurses and the, the, the degree to which they know their clients, the degree to which they care, you know, oh, the daughter called me and she no longer believes that my mom, you know, her, her mom can take 
her medications. She believes her mom is confused and it's dangerous, but I know her. I, she can take them. Like we, yeah, I mean, they, they fight for their clients. It's, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, clients love that. Uh, nurses love that. And, and so it becomes a success story where, you know, suddenly, um, you know, there's now 14,000 people working there. You know, there's more than two thirds of all the neighborhood nurses in the Netherlands work for this one organization because they just receive hundreds of CVs a month, you know, of, of nurses saying, can we please work for you? Because we, we don't want to take this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by the way, what's fascinating about that story is um, that, that some people, you know, there's been um, researched on by KPMG and Ernst & Young and to look at the financial aspect um, and also the medical aspect of Birdsorg, because of course it's easy to do great care and, you know, meet with children and neighbors and stuff if you have time for that, but you know, who has time for that? You know, we we're trying to shave every minute of every procedure, right? So, um, and what they, what they found is that Birchark actually uses less than 40% of the hours prescribed by doctors. Wow. Because nurse, because patients become autonomous so much faster. So there's this total paradox um, that, you know, they end up being, radically more effective than the system that was entirely built around shaving every minute of every procedure. They're saving the Dutch state hundreds of millions of euros mm-hmm. through that mechanism. So much so that I, I recently heard that you know, the, the Dutch medical system no longer requires Beurtzorg um, to have a doctor's prescription for their services. They just trust that Beurtzorg will do the right thing, which is Amazing when you think about, you know, how all of our health systems are completely built on, you know, control. Mm-hmm. And oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. But what, what is really striking is, to me, of course, and is how Birchok is organized from the inside, so their management, because from the inside, it looks nothing like these, you know, other healthcare organizations. So in Birchok, with now 14,000 people, you no longer have a single manager. You really have nobody holding power over anybody else. These nurses work in small teams of 10 to 12 self-managing nurses. So there's no team leader in that team. They distribute all of the management. There are rules. There are absolutely rules. There are roles. Because you're making me nervous. Yes. (laughs) Relax, relax. (laughs) But so seriously, so what, what happens is when all these nurses, you know, send their CVs to, to Birzorg, Birzorg says, Hey, here's a number of other CVs received in your neighborhood, go and meet and see if you feel like you can do this together. And when you feel like you've met enough and you feel like, you know, you can trust each other, um, you know, we will simply teach you how to operate in self-management and we'll teach you these rules. Like how do you guys make decisions in self, you know, when there's no boss, how do we um, deal with conflicts and how do we give one another feedback and how do you run efficient meetings? And so they teach these nurses, these basic self self-management. How do we distribute the roles, right? Um, Jeff, you're great at planning. Why don't you do the weekend planning and the holiday planning that nobody wants to do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm good with doctors. Let me take care of the relationship with the doctors. And somebody else, you know, is a good mediator. So when we have conflict, you know, she will take care of the conflict. And somebody these else is... teams, of course, they know what they need. So they hire what they... They're in charge of hiring. I'm assuming they have a, a mechanism Absolutely. for firing. Absolutely. There yeah. you go. Um, so all these things are pretty... Well, spelled out, there's now a thousand teams. So there's, you know, a, a lot of experience with this. Um, and, 
you know, next to these thousand people, 14, you know, 14,000 nurses, you have this tiny headquarters of 50 people who do mostly administrative work, right? So this organization has no CFO, there's no, no chief finance officer, there's no head of marketing, they've never spent a dollar in marketing. Um, you know, I once asked just a block, you know, 14,000 people, you know, at the time, I think there were 10,000 and asked him, you know, how many sort of MBA types do you have running around? And he thinks and he says, none. You know, it's a radically simple organization. There's really simplicity at the other side of complexity. Now, is he there still? He's still there, but is he must have on him. I think, I don't know exactly what it is, but he spends, I think, something like half a day or a day a week. Mm -hmm. He just mostly spends a world now giving talks and trying to help Birdsock-like organizations start up in right. all sorts of... So it's, it's remarkable to what degree, operationally, the organization doesn't depend on him. Like yeah. the organization just... It still very much depends on him. There is a huge paradox um, to be the guy who holds the space for this vision and this way of operating. Because we all come at it from the way we've grown up with this is very hierarchical perspective. And so right. he has to constantly reaffirm the principles. Yeah. You know, if something goes wrong, somebody will say, oh, we need a control mechanism. We need managers. We need somebody to sign off the things. And then, and then Josh comes in and says, no, 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 remember, that's not how we do things. So he has an absolutely critical role um, of holding the vision, holding that space, but he makes almost no operational decisions. That's, you mm -hmm. know, the system takes care of itself. Um, there's no executive committee there, you know, where these things happen. Um, well, and you pointed out that uh, they're divided into teams of like 10 to 15 people. And that seems to be a magic number in general yeah. for self-managed teams yeah, uh, throughout yeah. different kinds of uh, yeah. industries yeah. and te technologies. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what do you, what's up with that, do you think? I think it's very simply, um, the maximum number where I feel that I, I can be heard and where people will call me out and where I can't hide um, and where if something goes wrong, you know, and nobody else picks it up. At some point I will say, God damn it, I will pick it up. I will do it. Right. Yeah. If it's a larger number, then there's a sense of uh, somebody will do it. Suck, like, you know, who cares? Yeah. You know, I no longer want to sit in these meetings. Yeah. You know, they take I can hide out. I can hide out. They're, nobody cares anyway. Exactly. You know, they'll fix it. Yeah. Not my job. You know, it's suffocating. People are tired of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, now we're in uh, the self-managed teams. And, and, and it's remarkable because I can't help but think about it integrally and developmentally and all that stuff that, you know, you, you mapped out organizations from red to amber to orange to green. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the vast majority of human history precedes that where we were in bands Absolutely. and tribes. Absolutely. And bands were generally 10 to 15, maybe, you know, 30, 40, yeah. and that's it. That's it. And then they would be affiliated with other bands in tribes where they'd have the same culture, religion, language, that sort of thing. And that's 90 plus percent of human history. In yeah. a way, we're you know, at Integral, we want to be reintegrating the best of all these previous stages. And maybe this yeah. is what this is. Yeah. And I think that's why it works so remarkably. I think in some way, this is an ancient programming in yes. ourselves that we're yes. rediscovering. Is there anything more delicious than yeah. being on a, in a group of people of about that size? We've all had that experience. And we're doing something that, you know, we have to do it together. And we're striving and we're 
Uh, it's yeah. nothing and, quite like it. And I want to bring in that it's not easy. No. No, right? so, no it's a pain um, in the ass. I mean, you got to deal with these people. Exactly. Right. There's no way to hide. There's no, you know, boss that, you know, so systematically what you hear is, you know, these nurses and people in manufacturing, you know, there's a, a period that is really painful. You know, I, I can no longer blame anyone. I, re, I have to take responsibility for my life. You hear this all over. You know, the hardest thing is I can no longer blame anyone because people will say something they don't like. You know, you have the advice process. You're powerful. Go and do and, and change it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a huge learning curve that goes with it. And, I, I find this really interesting. Maybe you'll like this, Jeff. Like in, um, in a lot of these very culture-driven green organization that we talked about earlier, um, it's so interesting. They really um, put values at the center of everything they do, right? They, they're very values-driven. And almost unfailably, one of the values is fun or happiness, hmm. right? They really, you know, we want to be, you know, happy, you know, fun. Right. Uh, which is wonderful, right? What, what a progress. But in, in this new stage, I didn't see a single organization that puts fun or happiness in there, which I thought was intriguing. And that is because <laughs> I think what's happening here is what people really cherish above all else is growth and purpose. Yeah. Growth internally and purpose. Yep. And boy, sometimes that is not fun. Nope. Sometimes that is hard. Nope. And the last thing we do is a culture where we're supposed to be happy and have fun, which can just because we have mask. a ping pong table. Exactly. Right. That is just another mask that we might have to wear. Like we have to look like we're happy and we're right. Right. So sometimes these things are hard, but in the end, they're amazingly liberating. Um, you know, there's yeah. just an amazing growth that comes with it. And yeah. some people don't like it. And some people leave, you know, there's a percentage of nurses in these teams that end up changing teams because it never works in that team or end up going back to a traditional employer. Um, and the way I, I hear people describe people who don't, you know, manage to make it is often people who've been so beaten up by the system that they find it hard to take responsibility, you know, to grow into responsibility. And, um, but for most people, it works remarkably well. Those people who tend to have the hardest times is former managers and people who had power over other people right. and have to learn a different system of having influence and power with people rather than power over. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. I can see that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I know that you uh, sort of answer one of the objections that people have to this, that it's theoretical and, you know, it's a lot of this is, you know, ideas and, you know, but you 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 answer back that it's actually happening, mm -hmm. and you lay out a, quite a slew of companies, mostly small, right? Although yeah. I think at Patagonia that's probably small by that's you know right. industrial standards. But yeah. uh, um, so anything you want to point out that you know you're seeing that's encouraging or roadblocks or you know how's it? What's yeah. the frothy edge look like? Yeah. So what, what's really fascinating is that the last three, four years, there's been an explosion um, of things. Simply, you know, the times seem to be ready um, for this. And so you, you just have hundreds and hundreds of organizations that are adopting, you know, self-managing principles. And um, most of them, just because that's a majority of organizations are, are quite small, especially those, you know, who make quick progress. It's easier in a small or medium-sized organization. But there's some exciting things in, in larger ones. Um, uh, one organization who's sort of, you know, 
public about this is is Michelin, um, you know, the, the global tire maker. You know, there are 110,000 people um, and they experimented self-management in their production teams. You know, originally like 38 teams that had, you know, volunteer supervisors who were willing to share some of their power and that worked really well. And then they, you know, extrapolated that to five entire factories and that worked well. And now they're bringing it to 70,000 workers, um, hmm. which is just unprecedented in scale. Um, and so that's just an amazing experiment to watch. And they bring it also to their 40,000 sort of more white collar jobs. Um, and they still formally have sort of a manager for these production teams, but it, it's one manager for a hundred people. Um, mm -hmm. It's only there one of the three shifts. So really, even that, if that manager wanted to manage, you know, he or she can no longer do it. Mm -hmm. um, so you really have like effectively self-managing teams mm -hmm. at the scale of 70,000. So we're starting to see some large organizations who are embracing this, which is really exciting. Um, Wouldn't it be great if we cracked the code on, you know, what the next structures of human relations are? It's actually what we're talking about here in terms of seeing each other and you know, organizing in optimal groups. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're starting. To, I, I, in some ways, I think we've, we have pretty much cracked the code. I mean, um, you know, Maybe when we get to these organizations of 70,000 or 100,000, you know, we will still learn some additional pieces to, uh, with it. But, you know, we pretty much know how to make decisions now and what the advice process looks like. And we know what conflict resolution processes look like. And we know how to deal with what were traditionally staff functions. And we know what to do with budgets. And we know what to do with targets. I mean, there's just enough of these organizations and every organization will tailor it. So the last thing I want to say is that there could be a manual, like some people dream of sort of the seven steps to do this and and you can never do this. Like this has to be emergent depending on who you are and why you want to do this and what industry you're in. Um, but we, we kind of know how these things, how these things work. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, go on. I, I, I just want to make sure that we talk about the two other breakthroughs because um, so often we talk so much about self-management because it seems so crazy, um, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I think there's two other uh, breakthroughs that are just as important, um, but just more subtle. Um, and so they, they sometimes get less consideration. Um, one of them, and if you alluded to it, is just, you know, how, how juicy is it if we can show up in a different way? And, and I've labeled that, you know, sort of striving for wholeness. So what you have in, in most existing traditional organizations is the sense that, you know, I'm hiring my labor for a set number of hours a month and people get my labor, but they don't really get me, right? There's something where it just doesn't feel safe in most organizations to yeah. be really yourself, to right. show up really with all of your quirks and and your frustrations and your emotions and your hopes and your longings. No, we're not, we can't deal with that. It's too, yeah. it's too, too much. Yeah. And it, it feels like, you know, if, if I really show up in that way, you know, I will be vulnerable. Like people yeah. know stuff about me and that might be used against me and it will look unprofessional. And, um, you know, it, it, especially what touches me is sort of our deepest longings. Like so many of the organizations we work in do stuff that is in some ways really shocking, right? Such we, as? Well, the number of organizations who, you know, just have a purpose where they sell stuff that people don't really need 
where they you know have to put in lots of advertising money to convince people that they're not okay you know convince women that their bodies are not okay convince men that they're not real men you know that they so they create these artificial needs to sell products you know that are manufactured in china that you know use precious um resources that get used oh. once or twice and then get thrown away right. right and 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 so much of that is is shocking and demeaning you know so much of what we ask teachers with standardized testing is demeaning to teachers you know what is asked to these nurses you know who have two and a half minutes to change a compression stocking and be in and out of the door i mean it's it's demeaning i mean so but you know imagine being a nurse who speaks out and says, you know, goes to their bosses, um, not even with a tone of anger, but just coming from a just deep place of saying, you know what, I, I think, you know, this is a dead end track. You know, I'm longing for a different kind of care. And, you know, these people, they won't, they won't survive long in the organization. You know, there's just no space for right. these conversations. So we, we learn that it's actually safer to not show up. And I think there's even something worse is not only do we not speak these things, we, I think, come to the stage where we don't even think these things. It's become so painful to ourselves that we put a lid on these things, even no, to ourselves. It's impossible. You can't do that. So, you know, you don't. Yeah. But I, so I don't even think about these things myself. I, I don't even want to think about them because it's so painful. And, and so we, we just hire a number of hours, you know, of, of work. We give that to the organization. Yeah, we go in and we do our thing and, you know, the world turns. It's, yep. it's actually got us here, but yep. nice. It feels so crushing all of a sudden. Yeah. And, and I think if so many organizations feel soul crushing or feel lifeless, it is because we bring so little of our lives into the organization. There's so much of ourselves that we check out yeah. at home before we go in. But the horrible thing is, I think that sort of this, these masks that we wear in organizations, you know, these professional masks where we all look confident and we pretend that we know what we're doing. And if there's a mistake, we blame other people. And, you know, we, we show up, you know, very masculine. And, you know, all of these masks that we wear, I think, you know, so many people, so many of us never actually take off the mask even when we go home. No, right. No, in the, uh, you know, the uh, and, and so, sacred world to come, we're going to be more us than ever. And so what some of these organizations have realized is that you know if you if you hide so much behind a mask um you know there's also that much of your energy of your passion of your creativity um that doesn't get expressed in work and so they very consciously try to create spaces that feel safe enough for us to show up whole in the full glory and messiness of our humanity um, what would that look like? Well, I mean, in terms of like, what kind of spaces or how yeah. you, it's, it's extraordinarily vibrant. Let me say that. Like I've, I've seen organizations that are just vibrant in a way that I, that are, it's hard to put into words. Right. And, um, you know, I, I was just struck at some point in, in my research, you know, there was this almost the same sentence I heard for the third time. And it was somebody who said, you know, sometimes I wish my, my life at home could be more like my life at work. Mm-hmm. Right. And it means like, you know, here it feels real. It feels juicy. It feels alive. And I haven't been able to manage to do that. At home. Well, again, if we think about the, the, what it would feel like to be in a tribe yeah. or, or a band, 
of people where we're out and we're on our adventure and we're together and we're relying on each other and look at you and look at me and and uh, that's there's nothing like it yeah, it's just exactly. so fulfilling exactly um yeah. and again it's it's also messy right yeah. i mean but so when you have conflict rather than shy away from conflict the best of cases we have mechanisms that help us deal with that shit and once I, we've gone through that well you know I, I want to hug you. We've just had this this mm -hmm. really profound moment that, that was really tense. But so mm -hmm. you know, I've 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 learned where you're coming from, and I, I see you now, you know, and I know more about you than I, I, I knew before, and you know more about me, and right, and so you know, in the best of cases, that you know, that's the kind of things yeah. that happen, you know, and yeah. you have, you know, you have yearly performance evaluation conversations where where people literally, you know, have tears in their eyes because they feel seen so deeply. Right? Yeah. And, and, and again, we kind of know how to do this. It's, it's not magic. And this, we've, we've known how to do this, say, in some spiritual setting or retreat settings, right? So we've, we've known how to do this. Uh, and and we've, we're increasingly learning how to do this in, in organizations. And so it, requ it simply requires that we start to do pretty much all of the HR processes. You know, how do we recruit people? How do we evaluate one another? How do we deal with conflict? How do we, that we do all of these things differently, um, that we create spaces where we can talk from a deeper place. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I, at some point it struck me, for instance, you know, if you, if you take something like recruitment, right? And in most organizations, that's where the lying starts, <laughs> right? Because the organization, that there's not even this whole field called employer branding, Right, where the employer tries to use marketing techniques to try to look like this desirable employer, you know, and hide all of the reality of what it is in the organization. Well, the, and, the employees do the same thing. And the employees, you know, I write my CV and I, and I hide some things and I hope that you won't find oh, out about please. these things. There's a right? whole art to it. Right? And then, and then we have this first meeting, you know, this first interview, and it's this whole ridiculous dance where you're trying to see through my lies and I'm trying to see through your lies, Right. That's what the, the interview basically is, right? I mean, the, the line basically starts from the very beginning, right? The mask starts from the very beginning. And, and how can we do recruiting in a different way? How can we do recruiting where- Well, how, how can we? What's the way that they do it uh, with these uh, self-managed teams? Well, if you take Beardsark, you know, there is no HR, right? So in traditional organizations, you know, there's dedicated HR person that receives all these CVs, tries to sift through, compare them, you know, is probably not a nurse, but an, a trained HR psychologist trying, you know, to ask all these and it's trained in all of these interview mechanisms, right? And so, you know, the, what we know, the best practice in interviewing is, you know, ask people about their three strengths and give, ask them stories and, you know, all these, you know, right. they're trained to these things. And so then people get trained to respond to these questions, right? Here, it's just one of these nurses that has raised their hands and said, you know what, for the next six months, I, okay, I'm happy to do the recruitment. <laughs> Right, and they just meet and they just talk, and that nurse has no interest of selling their team, because in a you know next week they will work here, and that nurse will look at me and say, "You've completely lied to me. You've oversold these things." So I'm telling them the the truth. Yeah. I just want to see, do we want to work together? So what recruiting becomes is a sort of much more honest exploration of, are we meant to be together? Yeah, you know. Yeah. And well, yeah, it's just, it's sort of an up-leveling in all kinds of ways, yeah. you know, where you would just, you just have a different set of antenna. Exactly. When you go out there and 
and look for new members of this precious team that you're on. My goodness, it really matters. And it's pretty much no bullshit. I mean, imagine these these factory workers just hiring another factory worker, right? I mean, there's no bullshit there. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they just talk. Um, now, in the best of cases, these can be really profound and meaningful conversations where they talk about the organization's purpose. And you, Jeff, you know, does that resonate with you? And what what is your purpose? And, you know, does it mean something? And where does your purpose come from? And tell us a little bit about, you know, why that is important to you. And then you start telling some stories about how you've grown up and some of the experience. And, and we just get to know one another on such a deeper level. Um, yep. And, and, you know, it's, it's that simple. So what is, you know, it took me a while to see this, but what is striking about all of these practices, whether it's self-management or practice related to wholeness, is that in many ways, they're just dramatically simpler than all yep. of these complex practices yep. that we used to have. Yeah, it's the simplicity we, beyond complexity. I think you said that yeah, yeah. earlier. We're really stripping away at the complexity. Uh, yeah. All right. So we have self-management. We have wholeness. wholeness. Yeah. And, and the other emergent is? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I reuse the term um, of evolutionary purpose. Um, and so it's, um, it's misleading because some, a lot of people simply assume that, oh, it means that the organization has, sort of has a noble purpose. Um, but, but that's not it. Um, it's actually much more profound. Um, and it, it chips away at, the, uh, at this whole paradigm that we've inherited from modernity, that the role of leadership is to predict and control the future. Right? That was the whole project of science and modernity. Is, you know, let's predict and control nature. Let's predict and control. And so we've built this whole arsenal of tools. You know, we have, a, you know, a 10-year strategic outlook and then three-year strategic plan and then yearly budgets. And then we, you know, cascade it down in the organizations with KPIs. And, and then every month we compare our, you know, actuals to budgets. And then, you know, based on that, we give um, incentives and bonuses and stock options and all of that, right? So this whole notion of the role of leadership is to predict and control the future. Right, have a brilliant strategy and then execute it. Make sure that everybody just ex executes according to plan. And, you know, it's, it's striking how pretty much all of the founders of these other organizations or leaders, you know, these just the blocks, no longer believe in that. They say, you know, the world is just too complex. And who am I, you know, even with the cleverest of consultants to try and predict and control the future, right? Whatever plan I make, you know, in six months, things are gonna, yeah, gonna be shifting. And probably if we're focused on that plan, we will actually not see that reality is shifting, right? That's why, you know, all these big organizations go through these endless painful cycles of trying to operate to plan. And then three years later, suddenly like, oh shit, we have to do this massive reorganization because we missed this trend, we missed this thing. And suddenly, you know, this big painful. Off told um, story. And, and so there's a shift from predicting control to sense and respond, right? Um, I didn't mention this, but I, I talked about the previous metaphors, right? An organization like a wolf pack, an organization like an army, an organization like um, a machine, right? An organization like a family, that's the metaphor for this culture-driven green, green organization, organization, right? And the, the, you know, the, the metaphor, it's so striking of all of the people in this space, they all use metaphors from nature. They all say, we as an organization are sort of a living organism or an ecosystem. It's striking how they use this metaphor. And so living organism constantly sense and respond to their environment. Right on. And so what happens is that you get rid of pretty much all of these, you know, 
three-year strategic plans and yearly budgets and all of that arsenal, and instead try to constantly sense and respond to what is needed now. What do we know today that we didn't know yesterday? Um, one of the organizations is a fabulous organization, uh, Favi, it's a manufacturing organization. And they, they use this thing where they say, you know, traditional organizations, um, you know, look five years ahead and plan for the next year. And they say, you know what, we're like farmers. We look 20 years ahead and plan for the next day. That's nice. That's so that, that's sort of the sense yeah. of bond. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. You know, that, that, that helps me sort of, you know, I'm trying to feel my way into this. It's a new stage of human history. Yeah. It's a new yeah. stage of human development. So we think differently, we relate differently, we respond differently. And um, yeah, just actually feeling into that idea of uh, the organization as an organism is um, it does change the way I respond and think. And act. Let me tell you my, my favorite story that, you know, illustrates sort of the shift. Um, and, and it's, it's again, the story from Burtzorg. Um, so one of the teams in Burtzorg at some point um, has his insight and says, you know, what we're doing is care, but boy, we should be doing prevention too. Like a lot of our patients are these older patients and, you know, you know, sometimes they fall and they break their hip or they break their knee. Now we can replace hips and, and knees, but still, you know, people lose some of their autonomy. And, um, and so they just went out there and they found some, um, you know, physical therapist and, you know, some, some people who know about this stuff and just developed this program where they taught some of the, their older patients, you know, how to be careful not to fall, you know, what changes they could do in their house, you know, what, you know, how to get out of a chair and, you know, just a number of basic things that reduces the risk of falling. And then they had some public lectures in the neighborhood where everybody was invited and they just thought this was great. It was very successful. And they went to talk about this with Justin Block, the founder, um, and said, hey, we think all the team should do this. And what was so interesting to me was Justin Block's response. So here is what he would have done, you know, for, if he was working in the old paradigm of predicting control. Right, he would have probably um, put an, an internal team or a team of consultants, you know, to really look at this question and analyze it and say, is there a market for it? You know, can we right. do prevention? And right. you know, what you know, what's the business model? And you know, how is that going to work? What's the demand? What's the demand and all of that? And you know, and so this team works hard, you know, for three months and then makes a presentation to the steering committee or the executive committee that at some point, you know has them to make a go, no go decision, right? And imagine that it's a go decision, right? The executive committee says, okay, go. Then they decide, okay, now we have to roll this out to the entire organization, right? You know, we have to implement this, you know? Um, and so how do we do this? Well, maybe we have a pilot region and we implement it for three months. And then, you know, we have a rollout plan for the next two years. And, you know, every two months there's a new region that comes online and we have some internal trainers and we have a budget and, you know, that's just how we do things. That's how, how well, everybody does things. Exactly. That's how I did it as a consultant. It just makes sense. How else would you do it, right? And that made sense to me up until the moment I started doing this research and encountering these other organizations. Um, and so let me tell you now how Jean de Bloch did react because he didn't do this. Um, and his reaction was, 
you know, in a sense, you know, I like this, this, I, you know, this makes a lot of sense for me. Um, but who am I to make that call? Whether this is where the organization needs to go. And so he invited this team to um, package their approach and write an article and share it on their internal social network that they have, which is the way that this whole organization coordinates. And so they wrote up their story um, in a sexy way. And then they just had sort of the package, like this is how we contracted with the physical therapists. And this is how we do tours in the houses. And this is the presentation we gave. And this is, and you know, within a number of months, half of the other teams, half the, you know, the teams had adopted this. They just said like, cool, we like this. Let, of course, by any means, let's do it. And what I like about that story is suddenly, you know, there was, this was actually in some ways a profound inflection. You know, Bürtzark went from being care to care and prevention. But it was never formally decided in any way. The system just sensed and responded and the system just morphed into a new version of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what happens in Bürtzark is you have these thousand teams and teams are constantly experimenting with things and innovating and the good innovations spread throughout that ecosystem and other innovations aren't so good and other people don't adopt them. Uh, but it, there's no bottleneck of this going through a steering committee, an executive committee. Like these things just happen organically and spread organically and the good things just spread very quickly, the not to get things fold and yeah. that's okay. And it's, yeah. and it's, it would, it's, it's a natural expression of what you would do if you really cared about your yeah. patients yeah. and you really wanted to be as helpful as possible in, in this world. Yeah. I mean, you but, would do that. Yeah. But think about how, you know, how um, the innovation, you know, gets multiplied. Like you yeah. now have these, that's what I was saying earlier. You now have these 14,000 nurses, you know, uh, who can all sense into something could be better. I have an idea. Something here isn't working. And I just have the power to experiment it. And, you know, if this proves successful, suddenly everybody else is going to want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to convince my manager and then convince another manager and another manager. Um, and you call this evolutionary purpose. Purpose, yeah. So, so this is the procreate urge, or this is the exactly. thing that's, we're, we're all, it's built into the system that we we're, want to yeah. grow. We want to sense, we want to sense into that evolutionary purpose. Like, yeah. um, so if you want to express it in a, in a semi-spiritual way, it's this notion that we don't no longer need to tell the organization what to do right. with a strategy or plan, because there's the sense that the organization is a living entity, a living organism that has its own sense of direction, its own yeah. energy, its own thing to manifest in the world. And yeah. so our stance in many ways is much more humble. And it's simply to say, to listen, to, you know, where does this organization want to go? Like, where is this organization meeting a need in the world, a purpose in the world? And let's just dance with it. Let's just help it, you know, materialize that because the organization needs us physical human beings to, to express its purpose. Um, oh, yeah. Well, amen, brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. May it be so. <laughs> yeah. All right, Fred. Well, um, uh, before we close, uh, if people are interested in knowing more about uh, reinventing organizations uh, and uh, how they might work with your ideas, where would they go? 
so there's you know just a lot of stuff you know obviously they if they're readers they can read the the thick detailed book that talks about like a lot of these practices they can read the um the illustrated version that you prefer uh, there's also talks i've given you know that that are online if you if you prefer watching videos um, um there's a wiki that sort of details a lot of these practices okay so what's the advice process sort of sort of a mini wikipedia you know, okay, so conflict resolution, budgets, like, you know, if you want to look at some of these, these more granular things, I'm, I'm right now in the process of uh, recording a video series um, that will have over 100 videos about, okay, so you are a traditional large organization and you want to move in this direction. You know, what, what, do, we, what do we know about that journey? Oh, fantastic. There's, there's more and more organizations who do this and we start to learn, this is all very much emerging. So I don't claim that we've got it all nailed by any means, but we start to learn sort of the pitfalls in that journey um yeah. so cool things and so I'm, I'm i'm creating this video series which uh, is called insights for the journey um so if you want to watch that and um the other thing i want to stress i've talked about here stuff that's related to my work um there's uh, sorry there's also communities there's meets meetups happening in all sorts of places around the world there's a, an online news hub called enlivening edge that publishes tons of articles but um in enlivening edge. edge yeah enlivening edge.org um which i don't run it's just a number of people who are interested in in this field and do, do great work um and i you know i'm just one voice among many so what's really exciting is that there, there just seems to be this transitioning mm -hmm. that is happening and um you know some people resonate a lot with the way i've expressed it and other people feel like it's you know sort of the wholeness part and you know feels a little too you know, touchy feely or spiritual, and they like, you know, and so you mentioned there's, you know, a whole movement around holacracy, and there's a movement around another thing called sociocracy. Um, and, you know, there's um, uh, lots of other voices. There's a guy called Gary Hamill, who is, you know, a big name in the space. So there's just so many other uh, players in that space, and I would just urge you to find your niche and the person, you know, that, that you resonate with uh, most closely. Um, yeah, but, uh, well, but 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 stuff is happening, and you know, yeah. organizations are shifting. And well, these are ideas whose time has come. We need it. We're bored, Fred. Yes. <laughs> We're bored. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for showing us the next next stage organization. Appreciate yeah. it. That was fun. all right. Well, really fun talking with you and um, here. thanks for joining me and uh, thank you everybody for joining me and uh, again it's Frederick Leloux and his book and movement reinventing organizations thanks again Frederick.